0: the subject of the talk this evening is the seven factors of awakening or beyond the hindrances. So you probably remember the um, story that Bonnie told in her first talk about the Native American grandfather, the Cherokee grandfather, who was talking to his grandson who'd come home from a day at school where he'd had a hard time with other kids. And the grandfather told the boy that he had two wolves who were battling inside him. One was angry and looked for vengeance. The other was kind and wanted to help people and the grandson asked which one will win and the grandfather replied the one that I feed. I like this story both for the amount of wisdom it holds and also because it really resonates with the Buddha's language in terms of our developing our own mind. In the suttas, you find uh, these references where the Buddha says that what we want to do in practice is starve the five hindrances and feed the factors of awakening. This is the way he thought of it and the way that he described it. And you start to see that most fundamentally what what our practice is about is shaping our minds in this particular direction we develop the tools and the understanding and the skills to shape our own minds. And that's a a radical understanding. Most people in the world don't have any idea, A, that this would be a desirable thing to do, or B, that it's possible. And yet, with the tools of the Dharma, we are shaping our mind. The word in Pali that's used for this work is bhavana. It's the same root as the word bhava as in bhavatanha or the craving for existence. So it's pointing to the fact that there is a kind of development going on, a creating going on, and it's aimed at our own heart and mind. That's the beauty of our, our practice. And over time, a meditator can develop a great range of skill in this shaping. I'm sure you all have heard of the Indian teacher Deepama. She first came to this country in 1980. Joseph and Sharon had spent time with her in India and brought her over. And Carol and I had the opportunity to spend a month living in a house with her, looking after her while she was here. And she was a very impressive being you know, people ask, well, is it possible to be really deeply awakened in this day and age? And Deepama was someone in whom I didn't see even a flicker of a hindrance. I didn't see a flicker of anger or reactivity or greed or anything that was, that was off. She was very patient. She had a four-year-old grandson with her who was a little bit of a, a wild being at that time. <laughs> I remember taking her through department stores, and a grandson whose name was Rishi would be racing out in front and kind of pulling clothes off the hangers and bringing things down from the racks, and they'd be falling in the aisles. And then Deepa Ma would sort of be trotting after after him with her white skirt flapping behind her and this sweet smile on her face. I thought if she could be patient with a four-year-old, she was pretty cooled out. And she was. She taught, a, um, she taught a number of retreats here uh, on her visits to America. And at one retreat, someone asked her, you know, trying to get a read, what is in your mind? And her reply was, there are only three things in my mind. There's loving kindness, there's concentration, and there's peace. She said, that's it. That, that's a beautiful mind. And she manifested that all the time. So, for those of you who are interested in her, there's a wonderful book that was written by someone who teaches here, Amita Schmidt. The book is simply called Deepama. It's both a biography and account of some of her uh, teachings. Very inspiring. And you know, probably, there aren't, there's not a, like a surplus of great women teachers in our tradition, I'm sorry to say. It's very interesting because in our pool, the numbers of women and men teachers is just about equal. But in, for, coming from Asia, that wasn't so much the case. So the, the sort of venerated Asian teachers, Deepama is one of the one of the few women, not the only, but one of the few women. And this so this book connects very strongly, I find, uh, for women practitioners especially. So I, I recommend it to all of you. Uh, very inspiring being. So she was a good example of someone who had developed her mind so well that we could call it tamed. This was an expression the Buddha often used for the mind that was well-developed, a mind that had become tamed and free of its reactive formations. And such a mind becomes a friend and a support to one. So in um, an earlier talk, Joseph and I had described the five hindrances that arise and how to work with them. And I think I mentioned that of all the Buddha's lists, this is the list that is very key to identifying the obstacles that arise that obstruct the practice of meditation of people who are intent on developing the path toward the goal of awakening the hindrances of the factors of mind that block that current until we learn how to recognize them and work with them. Well, similarly, the seven factors of awakening are the qualities that speed that current along, that really support and strengthen and propel that movement to awakening or enlightenment. I'll use these two terms synonymously, awakening or enlightenment. They're just different translations of uh, the Pali term bodhi. So as we start to understand this in our meditation, these factors become our best friends. They are the ones that propel our, our path. Um, you, know, you can sort of say that we can't do it through our own will, but as we generate these factors, they do it for us. They carry out the work of moving us toward awakening This is a quote I mentioned in relation to the hindrances, but I think it's worth repeating here. Whoever has been liberated, is liberated, or will be liberated in the future, all will do so by surmounting the five hindrances that weaken wisdom, by firmly establishing their minds in the four foundations of mindfulness, and by correctly developing the seven factors of awakening. So these seven are, I'm sure you've heard them before, but I'll just list them briefly and then we'll go through them. Mindfulness, Investigation, Energy, Rapture, Tranquility, Concentration, and Equanimity. The Buddha said of these factors, they lead to awakening, therefore they're called factors of awakening. Okay. So they do lead there, and they're all described as maturing in release. Maturing in release. That means when we learn how to work with them and strengthen them and build them up, they lead to liberation. That's their destination. They can also be thought of as the factors that are in the mind at the moment of enlightenment, so that when one is perched on the moment of awakening it's these factors in the mind that create the condition for the mind to open to the unconditioned the opening to the unconditioned can't happen by an act of will we can't choose it or dictate it Um, but what we can do through our practice and through our effort is to bring about these seven factors, grow them up and balance them. And then such a mind is poised for awakening, poised for insight. So that's our, that's our task. And he also compared these, uh, this, this journey and these factors as like the, um, the rafters that hold up the roof of a peaked house. So, you know, if you like, if you look at the garage that's next to the kitchen, it's got a sort of triangular shaped roof, and that's supported by rafters that go all the way along the length of it, holding up the ridge uh, beam. And the Buddha said just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards a roof peak, so too when a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of awakening, she slants, slopes, or inclines to Nibbana." So these factors lead to the unconditioned, lead to awakening, that's their very nature. The seven factors were described by the Buddha as being sequential. In other words, one leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. So that's the way I'll explain them tonight. But we also understand that any of the seven factors will support the others. So it's not just a sequential development, but they are, they also, it's sort of circular in a way. They continue to help each other. And it's not that one has to develop one fully before one even begins to develop the next. But I think this sequential understanding is a helpful one to see their relationship. So the first factor is mindfulness. It not only starts the chain but it also serves as the one that keeps them in balance. The next three are called arousing factors or energizing factors. So these are investigation, energy, and rapture. They're all factors that pick up the energy. The last three are calming factors, calm, concentration, and equanimity. So they balance the rising of energy and bring in the sense of calm. And the overall balance is that one wants the energizing factors and the calming factors to be roughly equal. This is why you'll hear us say in the meditation instructions, find the balance of mind that keeps you tranquil and alert. The alertness represents the energizing factors and the tranquil represents the calming factors and we suggest finding it in the body because that expresses it in the mind. So, let's go through uh, some of the factors. Mindfulness we've talked about a lot. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it tonight. I do want to repeat or at least paraphrase a definition that Andrea gave early on in the retreat in her first talk on mindfulness, and that a simple way to remember what it is and therefore also how to practice it. And I may be paraphrasing her, but it was very close to the way I think of it also. Mindfulness is understanding what our experience is in the present moment. Or you could say mindfulness is knowing what our experience is in the present moment. And put that way, it's a very simple thing to do. We just look in the moment, what's our experience, and when we know it, that's mindfulness. What's interesting is this very simple understanding has these profound implications and unfoldings in in meditation experience. So when we first come upon mindfulness, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Oh, I know I'm breathing in, I know I'm breathing out. I know I'm experiencing a pleasant feeling. I know I'm experiencing the mind affected by desire. I know that uh, the enlightenment factor of calm is arising in me. This doesn't seem like a big deal, but somehow this is a very important factor of the mind that leads to many, many other wholesome states. So its power is hard to feel at first, but for people who've been doing it for a while, as you have, you can start to see the tremendous um, power that it generates. So in the sutta, I just want to mention this one little thing. The key term in my mind is the term pajanati. It's the term that is used again and again in all four foundations of mindfulness that Bhikkhu Bodhi has translated as understand. One understands breathing in long, I breathe in long. One understands experiencing a painful feeling, I feel a painful feeling. One understands the mind unaffected by desire as the mind unaffected by desire. This term Pajanati to me is kind of the key operational term in mindfulness, and it's simply knowing our experience in these different of the four foundations. And all the rest starts from there. When we start to look at what's happening in our experience and we just know it very simply like that, we tend to get interested. Oh, what is the experience of breathing in? What is the experience of breathing out? And therefore we look more closely, and that looking more closely is the second enlightenment factor, which is investigation. The Pali term is Dhamma-Vichaya. And there's a little bit of, um, I would say, disagreement within the tradition about what the word Dhamma means here. You know the word Dhamma has a number of meanings. It is the Buddha's teaching. As such, it's the second refuge. It refers to the ultimate truth of things, one sees the Dhamma, and that constitutes awakening. It can be used simply as a term that means thing or phenomenon. So all the experiences at the sense basis can be called Dhammas, things that are happening. And it can also be used to refer to mind states. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Word that's used is dhammas, sometimes translated objects of mind. So I think when um, Andrea gave her talk on investigation, I think she described it as the investigation of states of mind. And there certainly is um, justification in the suttas for describing it that way. In a broader sense, I find the factor of investigation wakes up when we bring an interested, alert curiosity to any of our experiences at the six sense doors. So I understand it as looking closely at our experience at any of the sense doors. So for example, in developing a relationship with breathing, one could get interested in what is the quality of the in-breath. And in that, bringing the attention closer to the sensations of breathing, investigation is happening. So this is a very useful thing to do. Um, One reason is that investigation is a function of wisdom. And in the list of the seven factors, it's the most direct expression of the wisdom side of the mind. So by activating investigation, we are waking up the natural intelligence that is wisdom in us. So that's helpful. And we we recall that it's not investigation in a conceptual sense, that this investigation is bringing our attention closer to our experience and rubbing against it more intimately so that we know it more fully. So for example, with paying attention to an in-breath, one of the things that Upandita would ask in interviews is, all right, you're experiencing the in-breath, tell me three specific sensations that you feel when you breathe in. This is an interesting exploration. A question like this invites the quality of investigation, and then you'd come back for your next interview, and you'd have to report on those three sensations, so you better find them. This is great when a teacher makes you accountable for something, because it really makes you look. And then he would say, and tell me three different sensations you find in the out-breath. And this becomes an interesting investigation, and then you have to report that in the next interview. So you could play with this if you like. You don't have to report it, but you could play with it and see. And see what that exploration does to the quality of interest that you bring to breathing in. So we notice when we get interested in something that it makes the mind more alert and bright. And sometimes that interest comes quite naturally. I was sitting at home, I think it was two weeks ago, and I was preparing a talk. I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and all of a sudden, two deer appeared in the grass outside the cottage where I'm staying, and one of them was acting like I had never seen a deer before. It must have been born this year. The other one was older and doing sort of regular deer things like grazing. Basically, deer spend their lives grazing. But this younger deer was what, doing what I could only call gambling something that lambs do in the spring after they've been born. It was running around after the other deer, kicking up its legs and sort of jumping for no apparent reason other than the joy of expressing its bodily delight. And so it was kind of running back and forth, and the older deer was just keeping its head down and eating the grass. And as I watched them, my whole energy and attention went into seeing those deer, You know, especially the younger one. I must admit I had a fondness for the younger one. And that's what happens when we get interested. Our attention collects around that experience. If we can get interested in the process of our body and mind, our attention will collect around that and the mind will get bright and alert. So this is part of the increase in energy which leads into the next enlightenment factor which is energy. So the interest of the investigation tends to bring up energy. The Pali term here is viria. This is the root, basically, of effort. So it's sometimes called effort, or it's sometimes called energetic effort. Other aspects of this third factor are expressed, other synonyms, as strength, courage, ardor, or my current favorite, enthusiasm. When we have enthusiasm for our practice, this is the kind of inward state of viria. The root of the term uh, comes from the Pali word vira, which means hero, or in the feminine it would be heroine. And it's actually the same root as the Latin for virile. The English word virile comes from a Latin word, basically the same root as vira. This is a particular kind of energy, though. It's not just random physical energy. It's energy that's directed toward the path, or you could say toward our meditation. Again, this is from the Buddha. Energy is aroused for the abandoning of unskillful states and the development of skillful states. One is strong. Firm, not shirking from the responsibility of cultivating skillful states. So, when we tune into Virya, there's kind of the understanding that the journey we're on is a heroic kind of journey. And the energy that we are putting into it is a heroic kind of energy. You know, and having watched you all practice so sincerely for almost four weeks now. I'm really struck by this heroic quality and the courage and the enthusiasm and the ardor that you display in keeping to your practice even when things aren't easy. I really feel that in the interviews. And it's moving and inspiring. So it comes very, uh, uh, the, the effort, the ardor for practice comes out of our motivation, our aspiration, of course. And you see it in worldly terms also, although it has has a different feeling here. But in worldly terms, there's a lot of effort going into worldly pursuits. Like I think about sports as one area where it's really easy to see. I'm a fan of tennis. And um, I really loved the generation about 10 years ago where um, Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras were sort of leading the men's games and I liked both of them in different ways. But Agassi was working with this very determined trainer from Las Vegas. You might have said he was a Sayadaw Upandita of the tennis world. (laughs) And he would have Agassi run up the hills around Las Vegas until he became so exhausted that he threw up. And he'd have to run every day until he got that tired He got brought that edge to that edge of what he could sustain. And I think about professional bike riders also. I, I like to watch a little bit of the Tour de France in the summer. And it is amazing what those people do. They ride for basically a month, full out every day. And one of them said that every time they get on a bike to race, they understand that they're going to be going through eight hours of nonstop pain. And they push their body through all these uphills and downhills and flat stretches absolutely as fast as they can go for about eight hours a day and at the end they are close to passing out. Some of them pass out when they reach the finish line. So I think about that level of viria that's being put in just for fame and fortune. And then I think, well, we're after something much more important, right? We're after the purification of heart and mind. So in one three-month course that I sat, Vireya was really being emphasized. And the basic instructions were that one should sleep for four hours a night, and do sitting and walking most of the rest of that time. So when I went in for my interview every day, and I was seeing Joseph and Sharon at that point, I would report every day how many hours I sat, how many hours I walked, and how many hours I slept. So again, with the accountability, I thought, I'd better work at this. And I wasn't used to sleeping just four hours a night. I was used to more like six on retreat. So I couldn't just do that overnight, but little by little, I worked my sleep down. I would finally ended up going to bed at 11, getting up at three every day, and finding out I had enough energy to get through the day. And so that's what I sustained for a long part of that retreat. And then, you know, if you're not getting involved in other activities, the rest of the day is mostly sitting and walking. so that's what that retreat was like. It was difficult to get going, and then once I got it going, it was sustainable. So that's one form of energy, and for me, that was really the the courageous form, you know, the most uh, determined form of effort that I put in 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 practice, and it was uh, very worthwhile. I'm very glad that I did that that style of practice. This quality of virya also expresses itself not always in straight courage and tremendous forms of effort, but it expresses itself as perseverance. So there's this nice story from Tibet in the 11th century with one of the greatest yogis in all of Tibet uh, who was Milarepa. He's still revered as one of the greatest practitioners ever And you'll recognize him in tanka paintings because he's wearing just simple white cotton robes and usually has a little topknot coming out of his head. So Milarepa uh, had several strong disciples, uh, most famous being Rechungpa and Gampopa. And there's this nice story about uh, his, his connection with Gampopa, who became a very famous teacher in his own right and has left a number of wonderful texts. So, Gampopa had been training with Milarepa for some time, but it was time for Milarepa to push Gampopa out of the nest. He said, Now you've gotten all the teachings, you need to go off and practice. So Gampopa was very sadly saying goodbye because he had a great love for his teacher, but he was ready to follow the direction and go off and meditate on his own. So Gampopa was starting to walk down the mountain trail, having taken leave of his teacher, and finally Milarepa said, wait, wait, come back, there's one more important teaching. So Gampopa comes back, and Milarepa said, there's one more instruction I need to give you, my son, before you leave. There is nothing more profound than meditating on this pith instruction. And he turned around, flipped up his white robe, and showed Milarepa his buttocks, (laughs) on which were two very hard calluses. So Milarepa said, the qualities in my mind stream have arisen through my having meditated so persistently that my buttocks have become as hard as a camel's hoof you must also give rise to such heartfelt perseverance and meditate. (laughs) So, (laughs) my noble sons and daughters, (laughs) my calluses have worn down so much, I can't give you this pith instruction myself, (laughs) but I I can relate it from, from Milarepa. So sometimes this, you know, this quality of heroic effort seems daunting, but if we just think about it as moment after moment after moment, then it seems more doable. I think we've already heard this quote from Sayadaw Utejaniya, but I'd like to read it again in this context. Right effort means to keep reminding yourself to be awake. Right effort is persistent effort. It is not energy used to focus hard on something. It is effort which is simply directed at remaining aware. It is not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. For this, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. So, when we maintain this level of energy and effort, As the mind collects around our experience in the present moment, there's something new that starts to come in. And I know you all have experienced this at times. I think you all have experienced all these different factors at times. I don't think this is anything new, but um, I just want to point them out in your experience, in your current experience, so that they can be strengthened. So as the mind becomes alert and energized and present... What starts to come in is a quality of enjoyment. A quality, you might say, of taking delight in the meditation itself. And this is the next of the factors, which is translated as rapture. I think that's a little bit of a bad translation, but we'll use it because it's in, it's in vogue. The Pali word is piti. And I think better than rapture is something like... Um, a rapt attention or a joyful interest. Because it means that we start to take delight in the meditation and in understanding our direct experience. So, this brings in a quality of enjoyment that may be somewhat new, or it's certainly turning a kind of corner in the meditation. So, finding the ability to enjoy our practice is really, really important, not only for sustaining our motivation, but also for opening the door to other beautiful qualities of heart and mind, which will come a little bit later in in the talk. So we start to discover that even something as simple as the breath can be a source of joy. There's a teacher in Australia named Ajahn Brahm. He's an an Englishman who's in Thai robes, and teaching in Perth. So he's kind of a transnational kind of guy. Um, But he stresses this a lot, the importance of joy in meditation, and he urges his students to find within their practice the beautiful breath. He teaches a lot around relating with the breath. If you can see the breath as beautiful, your practice will kind of light up, and the mind can collect around that beauty because it unifies its uh, enjoyable in and of itself. And so we start to find that we enjoy being with the meditation focus. We enjoy being in the present moment, and it becomes satisfying in a way that our thoughts and fantasies and past and future really can't bring to us. This quality of uh, PT or rapture is a mental factor. It comes out of the enjoyment but it often expresses itself in physical forms, so there are kind of different kinds of physical experience that accompany this quality of rapture. So there's said to be minor rapture where you get a kind of tingling or goosebumps over the body. There's a momentary rapture where you kind of get a rush of energy that comes and and goes quickly. There's a rapture called showering where it has uh, waves that pass through the body, a sense of uh, pulsation running through. There's uplifting rapture, where you feel the body is very light and could almost take off from the cushion. And then there's something called all-pervading rapture, where the whole body gets suffused with uh, this strong feeling. In the beginning, the experiences physically tend to be quite pleasant. As the rapture gets stronger, sometimes the physical sensations can get so strong that they become unpleasant. They can feel a little too intense. But one just needs to stay with it, open to that intensity, and then as it continues, that tends to smooth itself out, and that unpleasantness tends to go away. Rapture is one of the factors connected with strong concentration, which we'll get to later. Um, And it's often paired with this term sukha, which means happiness. So the rapture is kind of energizing. The sukha is more on the level of contentment, and these are often talked about together, uh, piti and sukha. Then because this... uh, mind state brings us into a certain enjoyment in the present moment, the present moment becomes more fulfilling. We start needing to go out less and less into past and future or thoughts and fantasies to try to get satisfaction or pleasure. Our real pleasure and fulfillment starts to be found in the present. Our enjoyment of the experience of that wholeness of attention and interest. And this Growing sense of contentment in the present leads to the next factor, which is calm or tranquility. The Pali term is pasadi. So you could translate this a number of different ways. Tranquility, calm, ease, serenity. One person translated it as relaxation, which is one of the reasons we stress that uh, in the attitude of meditation. And we're now moving into the calming factors. So the qualities of investigation, energy, and delight are arousing. They tend to bring up energy. And now we're moving through the doorway of contentment in the present into the pacifying factors. So calm is the first of these. So we start to feel that calmness not only in the mind, but the body starts to calm down. Often when the mind has been restless, the body is also stirred up. If there are lots of emotions, the body will be stirred with those emotions also. As the mind starts to calm, the body also starts to calm down. So we start to settle into the present moment more without so much desire or aversion. There's not so much agenda for something to happen because we're finding some contentment There's not so much struggle with aversion because mind and body are calming more. And thoughts aren't uh, assaulting us as strongly as they did before. And the feeling is, you know, early days and weeks of the retreat, sometimes early years of meditation practice, are really dominated by the hindrances, can be dominated by the hindrances. And when we first touch this period of calm, it's a little like, what, what is this? It's so unknown. It's so kind of foreign to us at first. One meditator said that when they first experienced this, all they could do was say, was to use the note, calm? <laughs> With a big question mark, like, what is this thing? But once we touch it and we realize, wow, this is really a possibility for me now, there's something really beautiful about it. And it's kind of like a sailor. You know, you've been out there on your sailboat and you've crossed, you know, storming seas and big waves and a giant squid attack and boat almost being capsized on the rocks. And all of a sudden you come through all of that and you come into this port with a big wide harbor and everything can just settle down. And there's something so delicious about that. Emily Dickinson pointed to this in a, a poem called Wild Nights, but she's describing the other side of this. And it's, it has this sea-going metaphor in it, which I think you'll, you'll get. Futile the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart, rowing in Eden, I'll read that again. Futile, It means useless. It's a little odd word. If you're not a native English speaker, it means useless. Futile the winds to a heart in port. Done with the compass. Done with the chart. Rowing in Eden. That just expresses this kind of peace where we've been battling for so long. And now all of a sudden we get to float for a while in this calm, safe, broad harbor place. This is where the the experience of meditation starts to reveal this natural peace and ease in the mind. We start to trust that this is something that we can come back to again and again. We start to understand that if we don't stir it up, that is where the mind settles. And of course, we'll keep stirring it up again and again with the hindrances, with thoughts, with emotions, and so on. But we understand that there is this natural peace. This is an instruction that Ajahn Amaro, who's a British monk, abbot of Amaravati, uh, likes to give in, in retreats after a few days have gone by. He says, rest in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of mind and body, and then pay attention to whatever disturbs that. It's a beautiful instruction. Rest in the natural peace and ease, and then pay attention to whatever disturbs it. So this this natural peace is some of what we're looking for through dharma practice, through meditation practice. There's something very satisfying about it. It's a temporary state at this point. So we know that it's not going to last, but there's something satisfying that for me has always drawn me to go further. It's like, wow, this is possible? How much more peace is possible? That's been a pull for me all along Uh, the way in my meditation. So one of the things that can happen when we meet this calm is not knowing what to do with it. And the main instruction is just to let yourself feel that the way you feel any state of mind. So you can kind of rest in feeling the calm and knowing it, understanding this is the mind affected by the factor of calm. We know it's temporary, and yet we can experience it. Sometimes in this Western culture, we are so used to intensity that we think if intensity isn't happening, we're half dead, or we're missing the boat, or it shouldn't be like that. So calm isn't an intense experience, and sometimes we think this is not enough. You know, this is not sufficient. It reminds me of that, that cartoon by Gay and Wilson. You know, he did a whole series on... Uh, Zen Zen Monastery, the Zen Monastery cartoons. So in this one, the cartoon is of two monks sitting side by side in the meditation hall, and one is older and one is younger. And the older monk is leaning over and whispering something to the younger monk. They're not supposed to be talking, but he's just whispering. And what he's saying is the caption, nothing happens next, this is it. <laughs> So that might be sometimes what we feel when we hit this patch of calm. What's supposed to be happening now? Nothing happens. This is it. So sometimes boredom can come up at that point because there's a neutral experience. So it can be helpful to note the neutral feeling tone of calm. can be helpful to generate interest. Interest is the antidote to boredom. And the interest can come out of the investigation, which is the second awakening factor. But soon we learn to appreciate, really appreciate, the presence of calm. It is really one of the great blessings of the path, and it's the foundation of contentment in our practice and in our life. One of the quotations I love from the Dhammapada was uh, the Buddha saying that peace is the highest happiness. And this is a literal translation. He didn't say the unconditioned or enlightened or anything. He said peace. The word used is santi, which in Sanskrit is shanti, which is the name of the house that some of you are living in. Peace is the highest happiness. This is a very interesting comment on human psychology. Because our culture does not generally hold this as its highest value. It holds stimulation, entertainment, gratification, sense pleasure, enjoyment, whatever else you can think of as its highest form of happiness. But the Buddha said peace is the highest happiness. It's very interesting when we start to understand the truth of this in our own experience. It really stops us from looking outside for external things, and it stops us looking from inside for special high experiences, states of bliss or ecstasy or rapture in the old sense of the word. All of those will pass and are not really reliable. Peace, although In the seven factors, it is a factor that comes and goes. In the deeper depths of understanding, we understand that its nature draws from the unconditioned nature of stillness. And so there is something more reliable in this quality of peace than simply a temporary passing state, although that's how it is for now this is a poem from Rumi called Quietness inside this new love die your way begins on the other side become the sky take a ride to the prison wall escape walk out like someone born into color do it now You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Quietness is the surest sign. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. So this quietness and the trust that we feel from that leads into the next factor, which is concentration. Concentration is the greater collectedness of that calming mood where the mind can simply relax into itself. Relaxation, again, is the key to the deepening of concentration. Concentration is not brought about through strong forcing effort, but by trust and relaxing in a sense of ease and allowing. Concentration is a little misleading as a term, because in the West it has a particular meaning. When we use it in the West, we say concentrate, we mean to focus our attention narrowly on one part of what we're doing. It's like, I'm trying to focus on my homework, please don't distract me with the television. Again, it's not a translation I like very much, but we're kind of stuck with it, because it's so widely used, so I'll use it as concentration But a better word would be collectedness. The Pali term that's being translated here is samadhi. And samadhi does not have this exclusive focus connotation. Samadhi is not about bringing the mind to only one point and ignoring everything else. Samadhi is about the whole psyche that has become collected in the present moment. Some of this confusion exists because bringing the attention down to one point can be a way of collecting the mind in Buddhist meditation. But it's not the only way and that narrow focus is not intrinsic to the experience of samadhi. So samadhi refers to the mind that has become collected. It is not primarily about attention on a narrow focus. I love this description from Ajahn Sumedho. Uh, One of the synonyms that's often used for concentration is a kagata, which literally means one pointed. So Ajahn Sumedho defines one pointed as the one point that includes everything. That's a nice way of blowing open the narrowness. The one point that includes everything. So, what's the one point that includes everything? How about here and now? The one point that includes everything is the present moment, one way of understanding it. Anyway, so when the mind is collected like that, it has a, a great power. And you felt that a number of you have described this in interviews, and I know all of you have touched this at different points. When the mind comes together, it is steady. you know it because it stays in the present moment for a while. Not forever, but it stays for a while. And as it abides in the present moment, it's not thrown off its present momentness by a passing thought or an unpleasant sensation or a little bit of stirring of one emotion or another. But it keeps its collectedness. And that makes it strong. This coming together of the mind's energy makes it strong, steady, stable, unified, whole, all these are really beautiful um, qualities of the concentrated mind. I'm sure you know how different teachers transmit different kinds of energy and one of the most dramatic examples that I saw was uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese master, who came uh, to Spirit Rock a few times before we had built our retreat center. We still had a big open uh, hillside that was a natural amphitheater. So we built a speakers platform for Thai at the bottom of the amphitheater and then there were about 2,000 people spread out on the hillside and a loudspeaker system so we could hear his hear his teachings. And he has an amazing presence if you've ever met him and been around him. For me he had a kind of stillness that I hadn't felt in any of the other teachers that I'd been with and it was a stillness that radiated. His body language is very still, his mind is very still, his words come out very composed and as I I sat there on the hillside listening to him and hearing him speak I felt like he was basically casting a samadhi spell on all 2,000 people And you could just kind of feel everybody just settle into the stillness of his being. So this is the quality of concentration. It has has a couple of benefits. One, it feels whole. It feels healing. And it feels good. So it brings an immediate benefit of a sense of well-being and strength and confidence. The Dalai Lama put it this way. He said, inner peace is the key. If you have inner peace, the external problems do not affect your deep sense of peace and tranquility. And this quality of samadhi is a big part of inner peace. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it is the platform for insight to come out of. When we are living our usual life with the untrained mind, everything is going by so fast we can't see so clearly. And it's a little bit like we're on a merry-go-round. And we're on one of those horses that's going around and around and a friend of ours comes to the side of the merry-go-round with a newspaper and they hold it up and they say, "Read read the news. But we're spinning by so fast we can't read the news. With samadhi, the merry-go-round starts to calm down, to slow down, and eventually comes to a halt. We're in front of our friend with a newspaper, and then we read the news. And the headlines say, Life is change. Don't hang on. If you hang on, you suffer. If you let go, you'll find happiness. We can read the news. And when we read the news from that place of stillness, it really goes in. Insight penetrates deep when the mind is strong and unified and collected. So the message goes right into our heart. We can see things the way they are, and it changes us. So concentration brings the mind into this state of wholeness, peace, stillness, and receptivity, and because of the strength of that kind of mind, it opens into the seventh factor, which is the factor of equanimity, upeka, which Bhante talked about a couple of weeks ago. So I don't need to say a lot more about equanimity. Uh, He spoke beautifully about it on that evening. Just to say that it is a state of real balance of mind that is not so moved by the alternating currents of pleasure and pain. It can stay steady in the face of the alternating experiences of the pleasant and the unpleasant. Sometimes in Western language, equanimity has a little bit of a connotation of unfeeling. It's like looking at the statues of the Buddha. He looks so serene and untouched that you imagine he doesn't feel anything or or care or have a heart. But equanimity is not like that. The true experience of equanimity, and it was interesting, at the end of a three-month course a few years ago, I asked people, we had a discussion group at the end, and I asked people, what were some of your most significant experiences on the retreat? And people spoke about being in a state of such balance that the pain in the body didn't bother them, their emotional flow didn't bother them, and thoughts didn't disturb them. And I said, well, you know, that's that's the state that's talked about as equanimity, and they, most of them did know that. And I said, okay, in that state of equanimity, was your heart closed down? Were you shut off from feeling? Did you not care? And everybody said, not at all, it was just the opposite. When I could be in that state of balance, my heart was much more open and connected. Metta and compassion came far more easily in that place, and there was a lot more warmth. So the state of equanimity is not a state of indifference at all, but with that strength and balance, then we can really move into the world out of love and compassion. So these are the three uh, pacifying qualities, the tranquility, the concentration, the equanimity, which are needed to balance the three arousing factors of investigation, energy, and rapture. It's mindfulness that knows the presence of all the others and can keep them in balance. As you go about your practice, you can start to look at this balance. And in shorthand, look at three qualities in particular, mindfulness, energy, and concentration. Mindfulness is the balance. Energy is shorthand for the arousing factors. Concentration is shorthand for the pacifying factors. When I practice on retreat, I try to always be in touch with these three to the point that if my teacher came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, where are your mindfulness, energy, and concentration right now, I could tell them. It's very helpful to know. And then you start to realize, if your energy is too high for your concentration, you need to bring in more calm. And there are ways to do that. The Anapanasati Sutta, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. I shall breathe in tranquilizing the mental formation, and so on. Open to expansiveness. If, on the other hand, the arousing factors are too low and the calming factors are too high, it leads to the quality of dullness or sinking mind. Then, bring up the energy factors with investigation or noting or some physical movement to arouse energy so that we can start to see how these factors are developing in our practice, in our experience, moment by moment. Because when all the factors come together and are balanced, that's when the mind is primed for insight. And as they come into their maturity, their fulfillment, as the Buddha said, that's when the mind is primed for enlightenment, for the glimpse of the unconditioned that is the awakening process. So sometimes today one wonders: does this awakening still go on for people to the depths that we read about in the texts? And I want to just read you to close a little a little story from a Thai master named Lungpa Liam or Ajahn Liam. He is the successor to Ajahn Chah at his main monastery in Thailand, Wat Bapong. Ajahn Liam is a fairly old man now, but uh, I just came upon his biography and autobiography that describes his practice in a special year of 1969. And I'd just like to close by reading some of this to you. Around the middle of the rainy season of 1969, Ajahn Chah encouraged the monks to practice with special intensity. So Longpa Liam increased his efforts and as he did so, results became evident. So first he described a real growth of happiness and brightness and joy. He said, but he recognized that was impermanent. So he just kept practicing and then he became very, very sleepy. For days, this great sleepiness overtook him, but he saw that was impermanent. Keeping this in mind, I kept on meditating. Normally, I would sit meditation until about 10 or 11 p.m. and then stop to have a rest. But on this day, I continued sitting without making the slightest change in posture. A feeling of peacefulness shot up and pervaded throughout the whole body, as if something were taking hold over it. It felt cool, a coolness that suffused the whole body, an experience of becoming completely light and at ease, cool, peaceful, quiet, and still. The only experience left was that of utter peace and stillness. It feels like there are no sankharas or proliferations of the mind now. All the suffering that arises with kilesas that had bothered me before, the attraction to the other sex, or all kinds of ambitions that I had before, they all disappeared. This is the kind of peace and tranquility that arose. There isn't anything to be concerned about as far as how any other things exist. As concerns dukkha, I don't know what that is like. Questioning myself about dukkha, there wasn't any. And the experience of this feeling has lasted on continuously all the time since then. There has been no change all the way up to the present day. This same state still lasts on, and it has been stable, continuous, and without change. So Let's just sit for a minute together.